from a crowd of fanboys waiting to see Carrie Fisher in her slave outfit. It's the IGN Digigods. And now, two men who thought The Hangover was a documentary. Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Yes, a timely reference with The Hangover 2 opening soon. Bob? Nicholas Gordon is responsible for that. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, Nicholas Gordon has sent us a lot of good ones, so we, we saved that one for the week of the uh, the Hangover Two. You know, you know what? We're good like that. We uh, we make sure that the openings are topical. Yes, we try to. Every right. we really endeavor to. We were sitting here before the show, just thoroughly enjoying uh, more Chuck Norris quotes. Well, there's a Chuck Norris. To <laughs> oh my God, there's a Chuck Norris uh, Hanna Barbera DVD out, and yes. uh, it reminded me of all those Chuck Norris <laughs> jokes, those Chuck Norris facts. I just lie. these things are just consistently always hilarious. What was when Chuck Norris can uh, cut through? Uh... Chuck Norris can cut through a hot knife with butter. <laughs> can cut through a hot knife with butter. Or death once had a near Chuck Norris experience. That's hysterical. Chuck Norris can win a game of Connect Four in only three moves. <laughs> Oh, I love these. He's just always... Chuck Norris can literally kill time. (laughs) (laughs) The last digit of pi is Chuck Norris. (laughs) Uh, Why are they they all so funny? They really are just consistently funny. I don't understand. Who makes these things up? (laughs) Uh, The best. Chuck Norris can sit in the corner of a circular room. Uh, Awesome. Chuck Norris can buy can go to McDonald's and buy a sad meal. <laughs> well, before before we get into Chuck Norris, um, I wanted to uh, kind of issue a little. We don't really do um, well. We have in the past. We've done uh, you know uh, obituaries for famous filmmakers and actors and, and whoever. But uh, there's one that directly impacts uh, the DVD business. And Donald Krim passed away really prematurely at the age of 65, just literally days ago. And uh, Donald Krim was president of Kino International and co-president of Kino Lorber, a real pioneer in the field. He will be missed. Uh, you know, Kino and Kino Lorber are, of course, in very, very good hands and uh, will be for the foreseeable future. But um, Donald Krim was uh, just a giant in the uh, in the field. And it's very, very sad that he's gone. You know, he... Um, the, the almost just there are only a handful of people who really made a huge dent in uh, in the independent uh, video distribution business, and he was one of them. And he's been in the business for a very long time, and passed away this last week at uh, sixty-five years old. That's way too young. Way too young. Yes, it is. So Absolutely. our our condolences to people over at Kino and to uh, anyone who was. Um, Fond of Krim or uh, you know friends and family and anyone who was even in, remotely in that that circle, um, you know you're uh, you've got a big some very big shoes to fill and a very big torch to carry on, but it will be so. Sure will. Wait, can I uh, uh, yeah bring up some upcoming D, uh, Blu-ray releases? Go ahead, do it. There's some good stuff coming up. Is there? And I'm willing to look well into the future because I know this information. Okay. Because I have access to this. Uh, there's this uh, a, a program on my computer. Yes. And when I click on it, uh, I can look up anything, any piece of knowledge, you know, presidents or the weather, or I can read the news. You know, I click on this, uh, this program and a window pops up and I can literally learn all sorts of stuff. What, what is this thing called? It's, um, the, well, the program is called uh, Safo Rai. Saf, I think it's pronounced, it might be 
Safari? Yeah. So what okay. you do is you click on Safari, and this window comes up. That's pretty interesting. And you know, you you type in uh, uh, what you want to uh, what you want to uh, you know know. Yeah. Again, any history what or you sports. Know, what yeah. you want to know, no. And then uh, it gives you a list of places that you can. Uh, it re- will refer you to places that you can go mm-hmm. in order to find this information you're looking for. I'm not going to throw you a life uh, preserver. Okay, fine. I'm on the internet. Okay. Um, Dumbo 70th anniversary Blu-ray, September 20th. Cool. Star, Star Wars, of course, September 16th. Cool. Wade. Yes. September 6th. Yes. Write it down. Okay. Scarface. I know. Blu-ray. You know you love it. I do. You say, love he- say hello to my little friend in high def. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. I cannot wait for Scarface. And in high def, his little friend is uh, actually a big friend. I don't get it. I don't either. Uh, what else? Uh, what, any good Criterion stuff coming? Uh, yeah, Kiss Me Deadly on June 21st. Yeah. Uh, people, on, people on Sunday on uh, June 28th. A couple of Criterions this week we're going to talk about, too. And uh, High and Low, uh, Kurosawa's High Yay. and Low is on July 26th. Long time Criterion favorite. Yeah. Thrilled they still have that. Totally. Uh, oh, The Killing also on August 16th. That's right. Which is in- very interesting because, you know, way the... Uh, Kubrick Blu-ray set is coming out in two weeks. It's coming out in two weeks, which of course does not include we have The not, Killing. Yes, we have not. Well, that's not one of the Warner titles that they typically include. And, uh, yeah, we have not gotten it yet. We've gotten Clockwork Orange. We haven't gotten the rest of the set, so I'm waiting now can I can I say something about the Kubrick box set? Go ahead. In the in the promotional materials, yes. Look this up, folks. In the promotional materials for the yes. Kubrick box set, yes, there is a uh, Warner Brothers issued uh, you know hero shot yeah. publicity photo of the box set, yes, with all the displayed out and looks yes. all pretty and people you whatever. Yeah, it's standard. They yeah, yeah. you know yeah. Uh, on the uh, cover of this box set, right? It has, names all the movies. It's on the cover of the Blu-ray. Sure. Box. The Killing, uh, 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 The Shining, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut, yep. right? Uh, the Shining, yep. Barry London. Serious? Barry London. No. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'm going to call it up on this. Uh, oh, s- that's s- dreadful. Sephiroth. Yeah, I'm sure that's been fixed since. <laughs> certainly hope Wow. So. What a mistake. Jeez. Warner Brothers, come on. I'm going to call it up right now. Ah, oh, jeez. Well, while, while I do that, you uh, are you know talk what? about we're, the Chuck Norris thing. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get into this. Uh, a couple more from the Hanna-Barbera Classic Collection. Uh, Warner Brothers has, as long as we're on the subject of Warner Brothers, you know, the Hanna-Barbera Classic Collection continues to deliver uh, really fascinating stuff that I had forgotten even existed. You know, Hanna-Barbera's done a lot of stuff over the years, and of course I always think, oh, yeah, you know, Yogi Bear and, uh, and whatnot. No. Ooh, Chuck this Norris. Uh, this one's fixed. I'm look, looking at this one. Chuck Norris, yeah. Karate Commandos, with a K. Awesome. Commandos, with a K. Uh, TM, trademarked. They've trademarked Karate Commandos, as though anyone might even want to steal that. This is the complete series on a very, very light and thin disc. Uh, this was such a bizarre show, and I, I vaguely remember this. Now, mind you, I grew up on Chuck Norris. Like, I made my mother take me to go see Good Guys Wear Black when I was a kid, because obviously it was rated R. I couldn't get in, so she came and she watched Good Guys Wear Black with me. And, uh, you know, I loved it, of course, until many decades later as an adult. I got it on DVD, and I watched him do that flying kick through the uh, windshield of the car, and I realized, oh, my gosh, it's a stuntman with a wig. It wasn't even Chuck doing that flying kick. What? You didn't realize that? Well, yeah, what was I, like nine or something when I saw the movie? Give me a break. 
so anyway, um, you know, this was such a bizarre show, and uh, it, it just—I mean, you know, Chuck Norris really just sort of. This is probably with the beginning of his mystique. This is probably the beginning of when it all blew out the top. Um, anyway, Karate Commandos. Uh, it's it's you know basically just an attempt to do a kind of uh, Justice League knockoff with Chuck Norris as the guy who leads this. Uh, multifaceted commando group and um, they're always out there fighting for you against the evil vulture which is the uh, you know led by the claw not the same claws on get smart this is a different claw uh terrible animation but uh, mildly amusing especially if you're a chuck norris fan what i actually enjoyed a lot more to be honest this was a very cool i used to watch this every afternoon this is the complete series on a two-disc set of frankenstein jr and the impossibles Come on, Mark. You remember this, don't you? Um, You've got I, you to. You know what? I remember that metal thing. I remember that. That's Frankenstein Jr. Whatever. Yeah. Frankenstein Jr. and the Impossible. You know, just because it happened during our childhood doesn't make it But good. what's cool about this? What's cool about this? There's nothing is, cool about that. No, there's everything's cool about this. Because the Impossibles are, are a band, too. They're a rock band. And they play that, that really kind of cool, groovy 60s surf music that every single band had to play around about 1968. And and the, and they would do these little interludes during the show. It's really catchy. It's a, you mean like the monkeys? Kind of. It was very very catchy. These are the Impossibles. Come on, give it up. They're superheroes and they're a rock band. You know you love it. Uh, no, this was a really just an unbelievably cool show. Very charming. An unusual concept. And uh, you know it's two different, uh, two completely different concepts. But. Um, and Frankenstein Jr. Who, who would have imagined you could make that work? Anyway, love the whole beatnik scene. It was uh, just way too cool. So anyway, you get uh, all eighteen episodes here. I never realized there were only eighteen episodes. It always seemed like there were you know forty or fifty episodes of this thing. So um, really a kind of a very cool moment in animation history. Checking out Frankenstein Jr. and the Impossibles. It's uh, a nice did, little trip down memory lane. Did you seriously call that a a, 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 a moment in animation history? Yes, I did. Special moment in animation history. We've got a couple here from uh, from S'more. That is uh, S'more Entertainment, S apostrophe M-O-R-E. It always does, uh, they're, they're kind of like, a little bit like Shout Factory. They do a lot of the same kinds of uh, pop culture stuff. Got a couple of uh, Thin Pack uh, releases here. And this one uh, is going to be a little controversial. But, you know, look, you're not going to show this to the kids. It's called Smokin'. Classic cigarette commercials from the 50s and 60s. I love this stuff. It's uh, awesome. It, it really is. You know, people don't remember this. I mean, I remember cigarette commercials on television, but I think people in their 30s, already too old. Like, oh, yeah. Or, or, you know, it's like by that time, you, you, you're you like, really? They used to advertise cigarettes? Because I think they were banned when I was maybe six or seven. It was it was pretty early on. Do you even remember them? Oh, yeah. I remember the Marlboro yeah. Man would ride into the sunset, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Cigarette commercials on television. I totally remember them. Anyway, this is uh, you know if you're if you're any younger than we are, and that's probably most people. Most people are. Uh, you you won't remember this. So this is a fascinating little kind of cultural artifact, and uh, the way that they advertised cigarettes was so cheesy. And you know the uh, I Love Lucy used to be sponsored by a cigarette company, and every opening was a cigarette ad. Well, you know what's funny is that back in the you know in the early days of television, and let's say the twenties and thirties, yeah. You mean the uh, 30s and 40s. <laughs> stop it. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, sh- entire shows were would just stop so the host 
could sell cigarettes. Yeah. You know, people hate product placement now. Imagine, oh like, just, like, the host of your favorite talk show just stopping for a word about Maalox. Yeah. Or a word about Chesterfields. That's it. That's what they would do. They would stop the whole show for a word about Chesterfields. Unbelievable. And then uh, there's also uh, is similar packaging, but obviously not about cigarettes. Uh, from S'more is a, a special centennial edition of Louis Prima in person. The wildest, his wildest performances from 1936 to 1973. I never realized Louis Prima had such an active period. One of the, uh, really honestly, one of the great kind of lounge guys uh, ever. And uh, if you're if you don't know Louis Prima, you know, forget about Sinatra and and you know uh, Hack, the, Hack, right? Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Hack. Forget about all the other you know. This Tony Bennett guy, hack. Forget him. Louis Prima. This guy nailed some of the most awesome tunes ever, ever. Well, he and was a real, uh, he would, re- like, in the 40s, he was a big band guy. Yeah. In the 50s, he had a Vegas lounge act. I mean, he, yeah. he and, and, yet, and he stayed relevant until the early 70s. I mean, he, he did. reinvented himself a lot amazing. of times. Really amazing. A lot of great stuff here, all the way from the 30s into the 70s. Uh, I mean, some of this stuff I had just even forgotten. I, I even knew that old Black Magic, one of the best versions ever. Um, I've got you under my skin with Keely Smith. Terrific, absolutely terrific. That's from the 1950s. Um, the uh, let's see, uh, as time goes by from 1971, and just a gigolo, you know, kind of like his theme song in in many respects. But he, you know, but he also was a movie guy. He, he was, was uh, he was a voice in the Jungle Book. Yep. And uh, he also had a song in in in, uh, in the movie A Man Called Flintstone. Yep. I know about Louis Prima. You betcha. Don't claim I don't. Yeah, he's the man. And as long as we're on the subject of music, got a great Blu-ray here from Eagle Vision. This is Heaven and Hell. The uh, 2007 tour, Radio City Music Hall Live. Um, again, I'll say it again. I think concerts are terrific on Blu-ray. Um, just the lossless audio combined with, you know, the fact that it kind of puts you right there in the middle of the concert. It really brings the live dynamic much more forcefully to the fore. Uh, this is pretty terrific. And, uh, you know, look, am I familiar with uh, Vinny Appas and Geezer Butler and uh, Tommy Ayami? Tony Ayami? No. But Ronnie James Dio, I know. So the late Ronnie James Dio. The late Ronnie James Dio, yeah. So this is, you know, from 2007, kind of right at the end of, uh, of Dio's career. And uh, check it out, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a... You love ser- that sort of, like, hard metal... Well, like, nostalgic metal. You know, like, geezer metal. Geezer metal? Was I guess it like, we can uh, call like it Lemmy from metal. Motorhead? Well, you know, you got Geezer Butler in here. Why not call it geezer metal? But this was actually shot... Mel's not old enough to have, like, a geezer contingent. I, I mean, know, maybe, but... again, maybe Lemmy would be the one. Yeah, probably. But this is, uh, you know, if this is your style, if this is your speed, uh, check it out. It's t- it was shot in high def, looks fabulous in high def, lossless audio is absolutely terrific. And a lot of great tracks here, uh, you know, Sign of the Southern Cross, Voodoo, uh, obviously the title track, Heaven and Hell, Lonely is the Word, Neon Nights, pretty great. And then lastly, uh, another legend who just uh, doesn't go away, uh, Brian Eno, 1971 and 1977, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, Brian Eno was like a huge icon when I was growing up, and uh, this is from uh, Music Video Distributors. This is not authorized, we should point that out, but uh, this is an interesting documentary about that really crucial period in Eno's career, 1971 to 77, which is when he kind of came of age and really made an impact. Um, he well, he, sort that of, was, he, he did a lot of his solo work during the 70s. It was, it was really before he started working with U2, yeah. which is kind of how he made his mark. And, and Coldplay. And He's done after, a lot with Coldplay. And Coldplay. And after he started, he, it was, you know what, it was kind of like 
right after Roxy Music. Yeah. Because he helped start Roxy Music. Yep. And then he went kind of solo. So it's sort of that, that it's considered that crucial formative part of his career. And he has, he's scored some films recently, too. You know, he's had, he's had an interesting uh, career trajectory all the way through. All, you know what? For All Mankind, he did. Yeah. Yeah. No, because he has a very uh, unique synth-heavy sound. Well, it's very. It, it was very avant-garde in the '70s. It was very timely in the '80s, and then by the '90s, he kind of uh, segued into producing. And you know, a lot of those guys did, like Thomas Dolby. Thomas Dolby just produces now. Well, you know who produces a lot is uh, is Rick Ocasek from the Cars. Yeah, Rick Ocasek became a very famous producer. Yeah, and the Cars have a new have a new album out. And he's still married to Paulina Portskova, right? Yeah, but she's got to be old, old, old. <sighs> wizened and wrinkly I don't know look at look at Christy Brinkley she looks the same you know she looks the same because all we see her are in are these uh, uh, glammed up uh, you know photoshop fashion red carpet you know snaps if you if you really saw her she'd look like Betty White yes okay I'm just checking it's 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 like that time that I saw Angeline Angelina what's her name Angeline Angeline yeah I, I but disgusting I see her around all the time no, in no, little, no. Little, her little pink Corvette I saw her. Ten, I worked with her on a show ten years ago. Yeah, and she was and was. Oh my God, it's Angeline. She's a uh, LA icon. Drives around in a, in a pink uh, uh, convertible Thunderbird, whatever. Yep. Shows up to the show. She's wearing a backless dress. Oh no! Just disgusting. Oh my <laughs> God! You're just an old, wrinkly, liver spotted, disgust. <laughs> and this is ten years ago. Well, she's still cruising around. I still see that uh, that pink vet all over the place. You know, Up and down the canyon roads. There it is. There she is. We can find out how old she is. Yeah, see what you, yeah, get on that. And then uh, if you're still uh, just jonesing all over the royal wedding and, uh, you know, uh, all that nonsensical fuss, uh, there's another DVD out, and I'm sure there will be at least 150 more. This is William and Kate planning a royal wedding. Yawn. You know, it takes a lot to plan a royal wedding. It really does. Way too much, more than it should. Uh, but whatever. It's it, this is a marginally produced for PBS, and it's I guess it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I could not be more disinterested uh, in anything. But you know, at least the behind the scenes nonsense has kind of a it has sort of a weird pastoral feel to it. Well, what, what was a bygone? This is like you know they've been doing this for centuries. All this uh, planning for royal wedding stuff. So it feels very. Old world, and I kind of appreciate that. Well, what's interesting about the royal wedding? The only thing interesting about the royal wedding yeah. is that uh, leading up to it, it seemed like they were participating in this completely antiquated tradition yeah. that younger kids don't care about anymore. But after the wedding, the the line was actually they've made this antiquated tradition a little more modern a feeling, little, a little more hip. Yeah. So now they're sort of like back in. Yeah. Well, there it is. So it, you know, there, there's something to be said about this. It's, it's, and it's only 45 minutes long. So, you know, why not rent no, it? Wait, or something. it only takes 45 minutes to plan a royal wedding. It does. That's it. Oops, you just, sorry. It takes 45 minutes to assign the various tasks to uh, everyone who's going to do the work for you. Okay, lemonade mouth. Now we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to lemonade mouth. Okay, fine. We will. So uh, let's cover sports, Mark. Let's talk uh, about Blu-ray, stuff. Sons of the City, New York, the biggest NBA stars from the biggest city. Now, uh, this is... Uh, New York Knicks. You okay? Hello? Uh, Hello? <laughs> uh, Bob Cousy, Bernard King, Connie Hawkins, Tiny Archibald, Chris Mullen, all the great Knicks who came, and uh, other teams too, but um, all the great uh, players who came out of New York. 
So really, it's a love. It's a it's a love letter to New York and the players who came from it. You know, my my father used to uh, manage the money of some of these uh, Nick players. Really? Yes, that's uh, what he did. He uh, wow. I mean, part of what he did. He he. I remember he once came home with an autographed eight by ten of Walt Frazier. Really? He was managing Walt Frazier's money. So Walt Frazier was only eight ten. Yes, really? he would run between their ankles. Interesting. But sometimes the ball would kind of like crush him in the head as he dribbled it. Yeah. It's very hard to dribble a basketball when you're 8'10". I don't yeah. know where that went. Uh, okay, uh, two baseball. Uh, I guess if you were 8 foot 10 inches as opposed to 8 inches that'd by be 10 awesome. inches, the size of an 8 by 10, that would be really cool. Because 8 foot 10 would make him the tallest man who's ever lived. Who, who are you? I don't know. Two baseball uh, DVDs, not Blu-rays to talk about uh, now that my Mets are, uh, you know, sort of a wallowing. And you know what? Here's the thing with the Mets. Apart from the year when they went to the World Series against the uh, the Yankees and lost. Um, we, you know, we, 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 won, we won two World Series before that. I know. Like what, in the 70s? No, in, in 69 and 86. 86, really? There was a Mets World Series? Yes, that was my formative uh, Game 6, baby. That's interesting. Game 6. Wow. There was literally, like, Game 6 is like legend. There was a movie called Game 6. That was October of uh, 1986. When you, yes. Okay. When you say Game 6, you mean one thing. Hmm. Okay, it's like if, if, you, if you live in Los Angeles, Angeles and you grew up as an L.A. Dodger fan. Yeah. Right, through the right. 70s, 80s, and whatever. And you think to yourself, Kirk Gibson. There's only one thing that comes to mind. What is that? All the coke he did on the clubhouse floor. No. Uh, <laughs> the home run, game one of the... Oh, forget it. Okay. You just don't like baseball. Well, uh, 86, I was living in France, and it was, it was all about uh, you know, Germany and Argentina in the World Cup final. I was, I was living in France. Yeah. MLB, blooper double, MLB Bloopers Doubleheader. This is a uh, DVD cranked out by the good folks at, the, uh, at MLB. All these crazy... Uh, the, I, I, I think the reason why... So many of these uh, Major League Baseball DVDs do well is because baseball does a very good, if not evil, job in making sure that when you post something on YouTube or right. online that's a clip yeah. of a baseball game, they slap that down. They slap that down. The only place to find any decent classic baseball footage is via MLB. Really? That's why, that's why I'm so happy there's an MLB, MLB network, which is all I watch. Right. This is all I watch, Wade. I watch the MLB Network, Channel 470. Okay. The only, literally the only network that I know the number of. Yeah. I think CNN might be 432. I'm not sure. Uh, and Fox is probably – actually, Fox is probably 411. NBC is probably 404. CBS okay. is 402. And uh, Family Guy. So uh, That's all you watch. MLB Network and Family Guy. Okay. Anyway, uh, MLB has a show called Prime 9, which is a show I like. It's a, it's a cool little show where they count down the top nine something in baseball. And here's a compilation that has nine of them. The uh, top nine greatest home runs, top nine unbreakable feats, top nine hitting seasons, top nine uh, uh, best uh, World Series, top nine plays at the plate. You know, wait, I, I know what you're saying. What are you? Because what, what, huh? I've seen these. Yeah. Um, what is, I believe, the number one most unbreakable feat in baseball? Um, I now, you're, say, now you're thinking, oh, maybe it's the... Um, I'm, I'm going to take a guess, and I'm going to say... It's ba- maybe it's a Barry Bonds home run. Maybe it's Joe DiMaggio's 56... Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that they are probably the the the, the bronze feet of Joe DiMaggio's statue. Those are unbreakable feet. No, no, that's not true. I know you're trying to be funny. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm working it. I'm working it as best I can. But I saw this one. The, okay. no, the I I if if it's what I remember, the number one unbreakable baseball feat. Yes. You ready? Yeah. Johnny Vandermeer in 1938. Yeah. He threw two consecutive no hitters. 
Really? So in order to break it, you'd have to throw three consecutive no-hitters. And nobody is throwing three consecutive no-hitters. No, no, ever. that's never, that's never going to happen. Right. Wow. There you go. Unless somebody throws two consecutive perfect games. If that happened, literally, I believe the walls would collapse <laughs> on society. That's just not going to happen. What about four? Uh, what about two triple plays in one game? I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, you, you know, it, you, you only have nine chances for it. Yeah. But I can see that, maybe. Wow. How about a triple play to end every inning of a game? Nice. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, that, that would be great. I, that's great, right? Anyway, uh, moving into regular DVDs, we got a couple here from the uh, After Dark Originals series. Now, After Dark Originals come out from Lionsgate, and, uh, you know, if you're a horror fan, groovy. If you're not a horror fan or a, or a thriller fan, then it won't mean anything to you. Uh, the two here are Seconds Apart and Fertile Ground, and um, they, you know what? This is just right in line with everything else that's been released in this series. Nothing, uh, it doesn't, you know, doesn't really transcend it. It's not really subpar. It just is. So if you have been following the uh, After Dark originals from the very beginning, you will be perfectly satisfied. Uh, Seconds Apart is, you know, about telekinetic twins. And uh, it, it, that kind of, it's sort of like a uh, witch mountain taken to a, uh, a nastier level, I guess, in a way. Anyway, uh, it's a kid thing, you know, it's, it's teen-oriented, and as many of these things are, so, you know, why not? And then uh, Fertile Ground is one of those uh, things that sort of uh, puts people into a new location, like Amityville Horror style, and, uh, oh my gosh, where are we? What's, uh, what's wrong with this bizarre, psychotic place? What evil lurks in the history of where we've wound up? Uh, and it always, it always seems to happen outside the city. You notice that? It's like you go into the, into the hinterlands, into the mountains, into the countryside, and that's where evil lurks. That, you know, how come also, like, aliens... Alien sightings are always in some, you know, huge expanse of farmland. It's like, you know, the funniest comment on that ever was when I did the junket years ago for Independence Day. And Roland Emmerich, uh, and it was so much funny of his accent because, you know, Roland Emmerich has a bit of a German accent. Just it's not too thick. It's just enough to sound very fey. And he was saying, uh, people asked him, they said, you know, do you, do you believe in UFOs? And he said, no, no, not really. I mean, I like science fiction movies. I like to make science fiction movies, but I don't think I don't see those UFOs. I mean, every time you hear about an, a UFO visiting the Earth, it's they, they always go out in the middle of nowhere and visit like a, a hillbilly with no teeth. And you just think, why? And I thought that was hysterical. It was just, it was so funny. You, they visit a hillbilly with two teeth and you just think, why? <laughs> Like, they come all this way to this planet. Why would you go visit those people? You know? Uh, Should be the, pretty clear. They're not the top of the gene pool. They're not? Not really. Okay. Unless uh, their name's Gene. Their, their name could be Gene Pool. That would be great. Yeah, right be, now, I'm, I'm going to look, do, this do, up look right that now. up, Mark. See yeah, if there's, there's someone somebody na- <laughs> named Gene Pool. Gene P O O L E. And, and use and right. use all spellings of Gene. You know, G E N E, J E A N, J E N E. There's a lot of them. One in, one in Atlanta, well, Eugene. Well, he calls himself Eugene Pool. Yeah, Minneapolis, yeah. Atlanta. Gene Pool is a project manager and director of business development. Write us at godsatdigigods.com. Tell us if you know someone named Gene Pool, Gene or Poole. if your name is Gene Pool. Seattle. Talk to it. Tuscaloosa. What were, parents, what were your parents thinking or not thinking? Phoenix, Baltimore. There's a lot of them. There you go. Fresno. All right. Unbelievable. All right, so wait. Uh, More new movies. What are we doing? More new movies. Okay. Uh, well, actually, uh, a couple of other little compilation deals here. Uh, these are a couple of uh, double feature bits. 
Coming to us from Shout Factory. We love the people at Shout Factory. Uh, the, another action-packed double feature, including a couple of uh, old sort of B-movies. There's Moving Violation with uh, a lot of people that, you, that you're not going to recognize their names, except possibly for Kay Lenz. We love Kay Lenz, and Eddie Albert is in this, and Will Gear. Remember Will Gear, Grandpa on the Waltons? Uh, Will Gear uh, Theatricum Botanicum. You ever been there? You know mm-hmm. where it is, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Will Gear lived in Topanga Canyon. Here in Los Angeles, and he uh, he established the Theatricum Botanicum, which is kind of an out. It's in the middle of Topanga. It's a very hippie kind of you know retro thing, but they do Shakespeare, and it's a little outdoor amphitheater deal right in the canyon. It's is nice. it like 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 hippie Shakespeare? Kind of hippie Shakespeare. <laughs> it's like to be or not to be, man. To toke or not to toke, dude. <laughs> Midsummer's yeah. nights. Bong party. <laughs> anyway, Will Gear is in this uh, moving violation. You know, look, it's a car chase movie, cops and robbers, smoking the bandit style thing. A lot of these things, these outlaw B movies were all the rage in the seventies. Uh, but the the beauty of this is that uh, Kay Lenz is in it, and this is from nineteen seventy six. But Kay Lenz, Mark, Kay Lenz, finest hour. Do you remember what it was? Uh, yes, uh, when she married her husband, Camera Lenz. Oh, you are just, we're pun monsters today. No, Kay Lenz was so, she was just so hot in the 70s and 80s. Unbelievable, great actress, a lot of television, uh, luscious lips. Uh, I'll stop there. But you know, uh, Kay Lenz uh, was the star of Rod Stewart's Infatuation video. Remember that? Infatuation? Where all he's doing is just, just leering after this woman through the whole thing? That was Kay Lenz. See, there's, there's, there's that, and there's uh, the woman who starred, uh, Tawny Katane. Yes. Remember she was she was writhing on the on the hood of the car and the, the white and snake she married video? that white snake guy. That's right. And then she divorced him and then she married some baseball player who beat the crap out yeah, of her. Yeah, uh, Chuck Finley. There the you Angels. go. That's right. See, I know these things. I think it was Chuck Finley. I'm I think sure it was. it was Chuck Finley. They had they had a messy. Look that up too. Probably hear me typing. Uh, anyway, the other movie on this action-packed double feature is uh, Peter Fonda in Fighting Mad. Actually, the way it's written is Peter Fonda is fighting mad. You know, Peter Fonda made a lot of junk. Uh, most of it in the uh, decade following Easy Rider. He just never really recaptured that. And it's it's always, look, it's always Peter Fonda. He was in one cool movie after that. One cool movie. Which? The Limey. That's true. But that was that was like, was like 90s. I know. Yeah. That wild. Well, no, here he, he's basically an, a farmer from Arkansas who goes and just goes totally ballistic. It's kind of like uh, Billy Jack meets... Um, uh, Walking Tall meets, you know, all those one-man war vigilante justice movies anyway. Uh, you know, it's Peter Fonda trying to be something he's not, but it has a certain kitsch factor. That's also from 1976. And then also from Shout Factory, another double feature before we move on to much more important stuff. Oh, there's nothing more important than KLN's, Wade. What are you talking about? I know. Uh, this is from the Roger Corman cult classic uh, line. This is a the Ron Howard action pack. This is a double feature of two Ron Howard movies. Oh, yes, Eat My Dust and Grand Theft Auto. You know, th- th- those two movies were like f- real movies. They're formative movies in Howard's career, who started yeah. his career with uh, Corman. Yep. I mean, these are like real... I'm, I'm actually surprised they put those two together. Well, the, the, the reason being that they're from the kind of the same general era, and frankly, uh, they were both New World productions with Roger Corman producing. That's right, but, why. But they probably could have... Definitely with Grand Theft Auto, they, they could have released it as single... Discs. Well, they could have. Uh, Grand Theft Auto, it was, of course, directed by Ron Howard. It was his directing debut right out of USC film school. Um, he, of course, had been a child star before that. 
and then Eat My Dust uh, did, it was not directed by Howard. It just starred Ron Howard, and it was directed by Charles B. Griffith, who had been previously a big writer for a lot of Corman stuff, who'd written a lot of great Corman films. And uh, this was, you know, he, uh, he got his shot at directing. And, uh, you know, look, I, I, Grand Theft Auto is far and away the better film here because Griffith is not that good of a director. But, they, they, again, this is both part of that auto crash, uh, you know, vigilante, on the run from the cops thing. I mean, look. Look at it. Just look at the, the artwork. I mean, it's just, That's it's, classic. it's just cars being trashed. That's classic 70s yeah. artwork. It's the best. It is, totally. Gone in 60 seconds. It's not as good as uh, I Am Number 4. Oh. I am number four from, uh, now this is from Michael Bay, which tells you all you need to know. That means that there's lots and lots of edits and noise, because that's what Michael Bay does. Michael Bay as a producer. As a producer, because this is directed yes. by GJ, uh, DJ Caruso, who also did the Eagle Eye and uh, Disturbia. Eagle Eye's got to be one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. It I is know. just, I think about that, and did, it's just Did so we see stupid. that together? Yeah, it was just stupid. It's just Shia LaBeouf running from the, the, Ooh, a, a whole series of outlandish things that are all being orchestrated by some psychotic supercomputer. It's like it's like somebody said, "Hey, you know what? Two thousand one, Hal was pretty menacing. But what if Hal could just like control everything? What if Hal was God? Let's make that movie." It really what? is true. It's like seriously. It, Come on. It, it really frees the writers up to do whatever they want because literally, nonsense. this computer can do any effing thing anything, it wants. Anything it wanted. Uh, what that has to do with I Am Number 4? Nothing. Nothing. we just rather talk about that than I Am 4. This was supposed to uh, be the start of a franchise, but it turns out it was the start and the end of the franchise all in the same film because uh, Alex Pettifer, who I guess is uh, being positioned as the new, hot, young, uh, handsome thing but hasn't really taken off yet. Uh, Alex Pettifer is this, uh, uh, this guy Alex who's pedophile? a pedophile? Fe- yes. Alex Pedophile? Oh, yes. how dare you. Uh, fugitive, he's on the run, and these uh, you know, faceless, ruthless uh, people trying to kill him. And uh, he moves from town to town with his uh, his protector, played by Timothy Oliphant. And uh, there you go. The three before him were killed, murdered, assassinated, and he is number four. This is uh, Blu-ray, DVD, four. digital copy, deleted scenes, a whole bunch of crap you won't care about because you will never rent this movie. Lame. Uh, you know, people didn't hate Romeo and Juliet. Uh, this is on. Uh, this is a four-pack. Wait, four ways to watch this thing. You ready? DVD. Never ready here. DVD. Mm-hmm. Digital copy. Okay. Blu-ray. Yes. 3D Blu-ray. Okay, so what you're telling me is I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, oh my gosh, I, I just I got such a Jones for Romeo and, uh, for Romeo and Juliet. I got to watch Romeo and Juliet. I'm going through withdrawals. I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater, but I only have my computer with me. Thank God. I have a digital copy. And then middle of the day, I'm in the car. I can't, I can't watch it on my computer, but I have a DVD player in the car. And I can you know, kind of lean back into the back seat and watch the DVD player that would normally be intended for the kids, even though I don't have any kids and I don't have a DVD player in the car. But for the purposes of argumentation, let's just say I do. And I, I'd be able to then watch it on the DVD. And then I get home, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, i got to watch it on Blu-ray. But i, I got to cook, so I can't wear 3D glasses because then I'll burn myself if I'm trying to cook while I'm wearing 3D glasses. So I can put it on the Blu-ray player. And then at night, when I'm kicking back and I want to watch it again for the fourth time in a day, then I can actually put it in the 3D Blu-ray player. And I can put on the glasses and enjoy it in 3D just as I enjoyed it in the theater and then I've gotten all my Nomeo and Juliet fixes in one is that what you're telling me well because the thing is that the movie's only an hour and a half so you you have an opportunity to watch it that many times uh, in well a that's six day. hours yeah that's important that's very good you know this movie's not that bad although you know last night okay last night I, I cultivated a theory yes you know, actually, you know, this theory was not about Nomeo and Juliet. This theory came about, uh, it sprung from a conversation about Thor. Someone sure. says to me, uh, how is Thor? I said, it's pretty good. It's not bad. You know, I'm surprised. And then I realized that there are now 
two grading systems. Mm-hmm. There, there are two grading systems that both require massive curves. One is the American studio curve, and the other is the normal movie curve. Right. On the American studio curve grading system, Thor's pretty good. It is. On the regular movie that should be good curve, yeah. not very good. Okay. So oh, there's, the, uh, there's the American studio curve. Yeah. The American studio grading system, which, which where, is basically where, very, very lax. Where our expectations are just so low that yes. if something just flat out doesn't suck... We go, wow, I'm, I'm amazed. Yes. Yeah. And then there's like the regular everyday grading system where you grade like real movies. Yeah. I, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. Sure. So Nomeo, uh, on, where does Nomeo fall on that? Uh, yeah, it's it, it, uh, on the uh, <laughs> it, very poorly on the regular uh, grading system, but not bad on the American Studio grading you, system. You know, I got to tell you, this, this always had the hint to me of uh, a movie where they thought of the title before they actually knew what they were going to make the movie about. Oh, I disagree. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this hey. sprung from some. This is creative genius sure in action. Of course it is. Well, uh, you know what? It, nice little uh, testicular 3D action there on the packaging. That's nice. All right. Uh, also from Disney is Lemonade Mouth. I know what you're thinking. Lemonade Mouth? Well, what? it's not four discs, it's just a DVD and a digital copy. This is uh, yet another original Disney movie made for the. Uh, the uh, high school musical set. This time it's a garage band. Hey, yeah. It's kids playing songs, really bad songs, and just being all kind of cool and yet chaste in that way that Dis- only Disney movies can be. You know what I find fascinating about this? And here's what occurred to me while going through this. You know, back in the day, Annette Funicello was a Disney icon, right? I mean, she was a Disney icon. She was on the, 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 the Mickey Mouse Club. She was just such the pure all-American girl. And then Sam Arkoff, and I had Sam Arkoff tell us this story firsthand. Sam Arkoff then snatched her for the beach movies, Back on the Beach and, you know, all the Frankie and Annette stuff on the beach. And Walt Disney was furious at Sam Arkoff. Did you know this? Mm-mm. Disney like was furious with Arkoff, and Arkoff loved the fact that Disney was furious with him because Sam Arkoff was just you know at the time he was a, he was an exploiter, he was a schlockmeister, AIP. You know they weren't a studio; they were a small company that that sort of uh, picked up uh, you know the whatever fuzz fell between the the cushions of uh, the major studios. That's where they dwelt. They were like bottom feeders. And, um, you know, drive-ins and all that. And they, they pioneered the teenage market. And Disney was furious that Arkoff had gone and spoiled Annette Funicello's chaste image with these beach movies. Now, you watch these beach movies today, they're like Disney movies. Oh, yeah. Like, like, teen, like honestly, Lemonade Mouth, it's, an, it's, it's no different whatsoever than Back on the Beach. It isn't. Kids, well, kids dancing, playing music, rock and roll. It's just bizarre how, how history has come around. Would Walt Disney approve of Lemonade Mouth? I don't know. I don't think uh, Bob Biger cares. But it's, uh, it's really interesting to me. Well, I mean, culturally, that always happens. I mean, you look at something like, uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, Midnight yeah. Cowboy. Totally. It got an X. It, got an X, it yeah. won an Oscar. It's an That's X-rated film. Now it's like a G. Fascinating. It's a PG. Fascinating. Should we do uh, new theatricals or these some some of these great criterions? Uh, let's knock out these new theatricals real quick because uh, there's a ton of stuff in here. Uh, yeah, rules of attraction. Uh, you know, not as horrible as I expected it to be. This is unrated. Not that it makes any difference whatsoever. Um, but uh, Rules of Attraction was kind of a big deal at the time, uh, written and directed by Roger Avery, who was going to go to the wall with all kinds of explicit stuff in this movie. And uh, this is now out on Blu-ray. It was made in 2002, making its Blu-ray debut now. And uh, there is a bonus commentary by a 
mystery guest, which we won't reveal, but it, it's not that exciting. And uh, there's also uh, five what they call revolving door commentary tracks by the cast and crew. That just means they splice a lot of stuff together. And uh, no other extras worth note. I Look, Brett Easton Ellis wrote the novel. As you know, he also wrote American Psycho, which was also a controversial film. Uh, this is not nearly as controversial. Decent performances in it from the likes of Kate Bosworth and Jessica Biel, and uh, that's about it. But really, is it is it uh, as much of a big deal as everybody makes it out to be? Not really. Roger Avery is an interesting guy. I won't tell my Roger Avery story in detail. I'll just say... Thank God. When I did interview him after Killing Zoe, um, I found it all I needed to know, which was that I asked him one question, and half an hour later, the interview ended, and he finished answering that first question. It, I've never been so exhausted in my life. And I thought to myself... Now I can see how this guy and Quentin Tarantino became friends and had a falling out. And I can also see how uh, I would never have wanted to get near any video store at which they both worked. Eh. It would have just worn me out. That two manic personalities. Two incredibly manic personalities. Anyway. Oh, wait. Uh, there was a movie in the 70s starring Charles Bronson called The Mechanic. And uh, it, was a, it was kind of a B-movie, but it had, the, yeah. it had these uh, kind of existential leanings, which I thought was kind of interesting, mm. especially for a movie of that type starring Charles Bronson. Yeah. Uh, somebody liked that movie enough to remake it and uh, pretty much take out all the existential leanings and just make it into a typical action thriller piece of junk directed by Simon West and starring Jason Statham and Ben Foster. And we all love Ben Foster. Um, I'm not a big Jason Statham fan. I think the guy in all of his movies, he just uh, walks around and scowls, and that's kind of what he does. Uh, he plays a uh, hitman whose new student is the son of someone he just assassinated, and uh, so there's very much some um, there's very much some uh, mm. tension there. As uh, as Jason Statham knows the truth, Ben Foster doesn't know the truth. Who's going to get who first? Wow. But in the end, it's just a very fairly typical. You know, and here's the thing with these movies: after a while, they all start losing all sense, all semblance of logic. Yeah. The whole idea with the mechanic is Statham character, yeah. Arthur Bishop, is that uh, he can take out anybody stealthily. Don't even know he's there. Mm-hmm. He's there, then he's not, and you're dead. Jeez. And yet, 75 minutes into the movie, he's running down the middle of the street with an automatic assault weapon, blowing people's cars up and just just emptying so, their clips into their heads in the middle of the street. So you're saying the development process in terms of this movie was successful? Yes. Okay. Uh, Still Waiting is a sequel to is a directed DVD sequel to a film I hated called uh, Waiting, which is about uh, yeah. waiters. And this one stars um, Andy Milanakis, who's still trying to grab a couple of seconds of fame from his work on TV, and uh, Adam Carolla, who I think Adam Carolla is really hilarious. Unfortunately, it stars uh, John uh, Michael Higgins, who's a really funny character actor from the uh, Christopher Guest school, and uh, it's a movie about uh, guys who wait tables. It's terrible. Goodbye. Okay. You know, I this is what really kind of depresses me, is that you see a film with a cast like the one in Burning Palms, which is out on Blu-ray from Image, and you go, why did this not get any kind of proper theatrical release? I mean, this is the, with a cast like this, 20 years ago, you would have been able to really do a good, solid platform release to theaters. This thing, nothing, nothing. I mean, seriously. 
you've got Rosamund Pike, Dylan McDermott, Nick Stahl, Shannon Doherty, Lake Bell, Zoe Saldana, who's made two huge films in just the, you know in one year between Star Trek and, and Avatar. I mean, why would you not have been able to just get a little something out of this? This was made last year, 2010. Come on. Because there's no, this. There's, there's, there's no market for a movie like that. It doesn't cost $150 million. I know, but, you know, it's... And it's, a, not, I mean, it's, it's, and it's not a $10 million horror film uh, about a camcorder in a bedroom. Terrible. Well, anyway, written and directed by Christopher Landon, who's got some chops. And uh, it's kind of like a like a like another variation on Crash. You know, all these interlocking stories set in Los Angeles... Although this time it's a little more tweaked. These aren't just uh, accessible people. These are people with uh, you know, some very strange problems and some v- really kind of sometimes disturbing inclinations. Um, but you know what? It's a decent film. It's, uh, it's well-made, well-directed, well-written, and it should have gotten a better release. So uh, go out and check out Burning Palms. It, uh, it's interesting. The tagline here is, Five stories that will mess you up for life. Number four. Five, four. Get it? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, and then Anton Chekhov's The Duel is on Blu-ray. Um, this is a very, very solid adaptation of, uh, of Chekhov. Now, Chekhov doesn't transition to film in the most commercial way these days, but uh, this one is actually quite solid. This was a, kind of a big deal, uh, what, a couple of years ago? Was this 2009, 2008? It was. In fact, I remember getting the uh, screener for this, the Academy yeah. screener, and never watching it. No, it's good. It's actually really good. Uh, I mean, again, you have to like Chekhov, and you have to like the you know. I like Sulu more. Oh, I knew I was going to get that. Yeah. Mm. But no, it's 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 a very nice adaptation of uh, a very difficult piece by Chekhov, and uh, I I think it's uh, quite successful. So, uh, bravo to uh, director Dover Kosashvili. or Kosashvili. You know, a good Georgian name that I'm uh, not going to be able to ever pronounce correctly, but uh, very nicely photographed. Solid all around. So uh, I would I would make this a recommendation for people who like sophisticated quality films. Yeah. Wait, there's so many good Blu-rays coming out. We got to uh, there's a couple well, of criteria. Knock, knock out, knock out. Let's, what? Uh, you that, got all this great stuff. Chaplin, yeah. Steve McQueen. Okay, fine. Look, okay, uh, Rachel up. Bilson and Tom Sturridge star in Waiting for Forever. A dreadful, this was, horrible. This came out just not too long ago. Isn't this was, just from this year? Isn't this January? Yes. Jeez. It was directed by James Keach. One of the Keach brothers. Wow. And uh, it's terrible. It's about a girl who does something, they fall in love, and at the end they hug and goodbye. All right. Here we go. This is uh, Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week, far and away. Uh, Criterion has released The Great Dictator, the amazing Charles Chaplin uh, classic on Blu-ray. The Great Dictator, previously available from Warner Brothers. Uh, This somehow winds up on Criterion. I don't know how. The, uh, you know, Marin Karmitz is a French producer. I don't want to dwell too much on this. Marin Karmitz is a French producer. He's made a lot of great movies. His company is MK2, uh, which includes his uh, initials. I don't know why it has a two in there. But um, they have the rights to all the Chaplin films. Somehow they got the Chaplin films. And they licensed them to Warner Brothers uh, some years ago for that mega pack. I would have thought that license would have hold, would have held. Warner Brothers should have been able to release a master Blu-ray collection of the Chaplin films like they're doing with the Kubrick films. But somehow it got pulled, and through Janus Films, who somehow has a leg in it, they, uh, they wind up now on Criterion. And I'm not complaining, because this is fantastic. Um, there's an unbelievable commentary on here by Chaplin historians Dan Kamen and Human Meran. Really, really good. There's also a thing on here, The Tramp and the Dictator from 2001, which is a documentary by Kevin Brownlow, the great silent film uh, historian, and uh, Michael Kloft, um, that actually studies 
it kind of crossed you know it's like a like a comparison contrast essay uh with Chaplin and Hitler and it's amazing i mean it really is incredible you get people like like Lumet is interviewed in here you know it's a, it's an amazing documentary and uh then you get some bizarre color footage that was shot by Sidney Chaplin Chaplin's brother uh during the production which you just i you know it's very strange because it's you forget it was like 1940 i mean they had color film then but you look at the movie it's just you don't expect it to any, be anywhere near the color era so uh, and this was this is you know Chaplin right at the end of his most uh, uh, his real golden era, but it's a great film. It is beautiful on Blu-ray. You gotta own this. If you don't own this, uh, then we don't want you to be our uh, our listeners anymore. <laughs> That's simple. Wow, I'm telling you, you know, it's very simple. And uh, more classics right here. We are talking about Le Mans. It is on DVD and on Blu-ray. Yeah, come on. 1971, Steve McQueen. Oh, so good. Now, there's nothing else on here. Uh, It is a very, very good transfer. Not the greatest transfer. But Le Mans is a very grainy film to begin with. Um, Well, you realize that they they use actual footage from the 1970 uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans. Well, that's that's why. You know, it's and, and there's rain in some of these scenes. I mean... Le Mans is a race that just does not get enough uh, attention now. Really, it doesn't. It like I I don't know. We Indianapolis five hundred and the uh, all the various. Uh, well, because they're all like NASCAR America first uh, America. F- but even yeah. even like the Monaco Grand Prix gets more uh, attention here, and Grand Prix racing, and the movie Grand Prix is is not bad. You know James Garner, but Le Mans is just. This movie rocks. It really rocks. And there's no dialogue for like the first half hour of the movie. Oh, it's so good. It's just, and you know, that really cool score by Michel Legrand. Uh, it's just, man, this is a good movie. Uh, and the director never really, you know, did anything. I mean, Lee Katzen, that's like the only thing he ever did of note. It's bizarre. Anyway, great movie. Just a terrific movie. Really a lot of fun. Awesome footage of the cars. And uh, you would never, ever see this movie made today unless it was with CGI. Steve McQueen was the coolest guy in the world. Who was he sleeping with at this time? Everybody. Everyone. Ali McGraw. That, probably. Lamaze. Good stuff. Oh, it's so good. Also good stuff is a, uh, is uh, the Blu-ray, the long-awaited Blu-ray. Great transfer from Warner Brothers, who we were talking about during the show. is always doing good by their, uh, catalog, uh, their uh, classic stuff. Papillon, which, of course, is French for flying butter. Oh, butterfly, not yes, flying butter. Not flying butter. Oh, no. Interesting. Uh, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. Steve McQueen plays a uh, guy who wants to escape from Devil's Island because yeah. you know what? It's a place to escape from. Mm-hmm. And you know when you talk about directors who uh, have who direct a lot of great films but don't really get that sort of cred, Franklin Schaffner. Yep. I mean, look at this guy. You got uh, you got your, you got your basic Planet of the Apes. I know. Got your basic Patton. I know. Got your basic uh, Papillon. Yeah. And yet, uh, who's Franklin J. Schaffner? No one knows. Uh, well, he won an Oscar for, for Patton. Yes, he did. We got a couple of monsters here. Now, this is... Wait a uh, You got to say nice things about Papillon. You oh, love this sorry. movie. It's got a I book do. and everything. Uh, well, Papillon's a... It's a good look. I mean, what can you say? It's just beautifully shot. Tremendous music. Jerry Goldsmith, right? It's one of those great Jerry Goldsmith scores. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful thing. Another Steve McQueen classic. And uh, Dustin Hoffman in one of his weirder roles. Oh. <laughs> He's kind of creepy. <laughs> You know, Hoffman is, is I think... This was, th- his, this was like his golden era, too. There's something very modern about Hoffman, however, because you think of him with, like, Tootsie and whatever, but there, there's something very chameleonic about Hoffman when he wants to be. Razzo Rizzo, Papillon. Hoffman had a, like, about a 15, 16-year stretch where he was the man. He was just unbelievably the man, and it starts with The Graduate, and it goes right through Midnight Cowboy and things like Papillon and all the way into, uh, you know, into stuff like Kramer and Tootsie into the early 80s. 
And uh, then he just, and, and even to Rain Man, I guess you could even go into the into the late '80s. But it's like, wow, that guy—he was just a man in so many ways. Well, because you know, when he started, leading men didn't look like that. I know it was, was very unusual to have a leading man be some nebbishy Jew. I know it was great, and he just nails it. And he, and they're all character parts. They're not like leading man parts. He's not wooing women. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, in the graduate, he's, women are wooing him, older women, in a sure. creepy way. But it's just, he, he nailed it, man. He was just, he, oh, he's, and he's still great. And you still embarrass yourself when you talk to him. <laughs> it's not going right. to happen, is it? No, it's not going to happen. No. Uh, Gods and Generals, the extended director's cut, and uh, Gettysburg, the director's cut. Now, these films, let me take just a moment to, to kind of dwell on these. Um, the... Ron Maxwell is a filmmaker who has really not done a whole lot at all. He His entire career has been in the pursuit of making these two films and then in getting these films recognized and then in uh, you know doing the DVDs of these films. They are separated by quite a few years. Gettysburg, you know, more than a decade. Gettysburg was uh, kind of his, his attempt at becoming a major, major filmmaker. And uh, I, I, Mark, did you see Gettysburg? Because it's like four no, hours. it's like seventy-five hours. It's four hours long. I mean, it was it was a big deal at the time, and it was well received. Barringer's great. It, it's and actually, it, and this is four and a half hours long. I mean, the original. I thought I saw the original uh, theatrical release of it, and it was aired like Ted Turner aired it uh, eventually on television, like a week or two later or something like that. But they released this theatrically. It was four hours long with an intermission, uh, and uh, I went and saw it. And uh, I, I just thought it's a PG-rated movie about the Civil War, about the most bloody battle in the Civil War. I don't understand. Like, you're pulling your punches left and right. Amazing cast. I, don't, I, I kid you not, an unbelievable cast, you know. Uh, but Tom Berenger has the worst beard makeup ever. The one thing that I thought made it, and look, they recreate the Battle of Gettysburg meticulously. It's everything except how bloody and gory it was. It should have been an R-rated movie through the roof. It, it would have, it could have been great. Uh, now these are both Blu-rays. You're you're getting really solid uh, transfer quality here. I mean, this is Warner Brothers just pulling out all the stops to give you amazing Blu-ray quality. But um, I still say the only reason why, uh, the only reason to watch Gettysburg, and there are all these interlocking stories here. The only reason to watch this is Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels is phenomenal. Oh, sure. He is unbelievable in this movie. I mean, he could have and should have gotten a, an Oscar nomination for it, but nobody saw it because it was four hours long. Gosh. You love four-hour movies. And then like two years Tree of ago, life. Yeah. Oh. We're going we're gonna to talk, you know, uh, Walt in Las Vegas emailed us about uh, Malik and Tree of Life, and we're going to have to uh, talk about that next week's show. Uh, the Anyway, uh, Gods and Generals is the sequel uh, to Gettysburg, basically, and it is a much more ordinary film, a less remarkable film. Um, really, some, some interesting things in it. Uh, you know, some of the featurettes are interesting. Jeff Daniels is in this as well, very good. Robert Duvall, very, very good as Robert E. Lee. Um, but I and Stephen Lang, not bad, uh, actually. But, uh, you know, once again, kind of the same problem. It's, 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 it just kind of pulls its punches, and it's too long. Uh, Maxwell is a very ambitious guy, but I think a little bit too ambitious for his talents. Don't forget, too, these things were really made to be seen on TV. They really were, and that's and that's, and that's why okay. Brought... It's but you know, it's basically a miniseries. Like back in the seventies and eighties, it would be a miniseries, and that's it. And they should have been. You know, I, I brought movie, I brought feature film expectations to what was essentially a miniseries released in theaters, and maybe that was unfair. Jerk. Was unfair. I know. I, jerk. Because I, I am a jerk. 
I am a jerk. Uh, we'll get to TV here in a second, but before we do, uh, I want to make mention of uh, a quartet of films from MGM and 20th Century Fox. Now, these are MGM titles released by 20th Century Fox as part of their uh, M.O. Uh, what is it? M.O. Made to Burn, Made to Order, whatever. It's the same thing that the Warner Archive stuff does, where you basically order it off the website, and it's a, it's a DVD-R, packaged like a regular DVD, uh, they, as soon as you order it, they make they burn it for you, and this is how they can affordably release uh, certain movies that you otherwise might never see mass produced for DVD because there isn't sufficiently a market for it. Now, some of these have been released previously and then withdrawn, discontinued, and now this is the only way that you can get them going forward. They're not going to continue to make any more of Paul Schrader's Patty Hearst. Okay, uh, so if you have a an original release of Patty Hearst, hang on to it because there's never ever again going to be a uh, a pressed regular mass market DVD of Patty Hearst. Now it's all going to be DVD-Rs. Looks the same, uh, just probably not as durable. But uh, really features a very interesting performance uh, as Patty Hearst from Natasha Richardson and uh, probably the, the best performance she ever gave. So it's a very interesting recreation of that whole Patty Hearst thing, which I lived through. You, you remember all that. That was weird. Uh, I was a little young and uh, so were you. That was a weird period, man. Weird period. Uh, then there's also uh, The Happy Thieves, which is uh, an interesting little forgotten tidbit starring uh, Rex Harrison and Rita Hayworth. And um, both of them well past their prime by this time, but uh, it is an interesting pairing and not a terrible film by George Marshall, who, of course, also was a little bit past his prime. Uh, it's based on a novel called The Oldest Confession, and uh, Rex Harrison plays an Art thief and uh, Rita Hayworth plays the uh, plays a the the wealthy heiress that he's going to uh, try and seduce and then rip off. Not not a bad little movie. And then oh, you know what, Mark? We may not get to television today. A Thousand Clowns Ooh. is. Th- you like a Thousand Clowns? Ooh, it's a sequel to Nine Hundred Ninety Nine Clowns. There you go. Jason Robards and Barbara Harris. That was good stuff. Yeah, this is this is another very very decent film. Uh, directed by Fred Coe, another guy who didn't have a huge career but did a few interesting little films. And uh, this is based on a Herb Gardner play, adapted by Herb Gardner as well. Uh, Jason Robards and Barbara Harris, two terrific, terrific um, uh, performers. Definitely uh, worth watching them just do their thing. And then uh, Charlton Heston in The Call of the Wild, which is kind of amusing. Um, You know... I'm not a gigantic fan of uh, Jack London, anything that he wrote, but uh, The Call of the Wild is a pretty good story, and uh, this is a decent telling of it, but not the best. There was a, there, were, there have been other versions of this that I think are better, but, you know, it's Charlton Heston, and he's always good, worth, worth a look. Charlton Heston! Yeah, Chuck. All right. Well, you know what? We're going we're gonna to pick up with TV next week and uh, finish off whatever we didn't get to this week. It's a busy season. Got a lot more really cool releases next week, and we'll do listener mail as well. Uh, Mark, any, any last gems of wisdom if for the folks? If you are promising listener mail, Wade. I'm promising it. you got to make a note to yourself. Yeah, you betcha. We'll do you're it. You're going to forget. No, I won't. Because you're old and you wear glasses now. Yes. Ha ha, sucker. Uh.